Hello everyone, my name is Camille and you are listening to the Craving Crime podcast sponsored by the Criminology and Criminal Justice Collective at the University of Michigan Dearborn. We are so excited to have you join us today as we talk about one of the most famous murderers of the country, John List. John List killed his wife, his three children and his mother in November 1971 at their home in Westfield, New Jersey, and then he disappeared for almost 18 years. The Lee's family lived at 431 Hillside Avenue, Lerch, Manor. It was extremely big, having around 19 rooms. All six family members lived there. You got um, the father, he was 46 years old, uh, John List, who was working as VP in a bunk close to his home. And then the mother, Ellen, she was a stay-at-home mother. And they got three kids, aged from 6 to 13. And Alma, which is John's mother, who is John's mother, she was 85 years old, who paid for a part of the house. Uh, that's why she was living with them, but in, an, in her own quarters. To learn more about the family that he built before killing them, I will go back through his childhood. So John was born on September 17, 1925, and he was the only child of his parents. From a very young age, they brought him as a Lutheran. His parents pushed him to believe in God, and they were all extremely faithful. He served three years in the United States Army, where he was a laboratory technician in Germany. Then he went to study at the University of Michigan, precisely in Ann Arbor, where he got a bachelor's degree in business administration and a master's degree in accounting. Because of the Korean War in November 1950, he was called back to the military service where he met Ellen Taylor. She was 25 at the moment and a widow and they got married only three months after the day they met. They together moved to several places and John was working principally on accounting firms while Ellen was not working at all and instead she was drinking. She was drinking all day because she got an untreated tertiary syphilis that she got from her first husband. On top of that, she pressured least into marriage by saying she was pregnant, even if she was not. They got married in Maryland, which did not require the premarital syphilis test mandated in most other states at the time. But due to that, her physical and mental health progressively deteriorated and she was frequently humiliating her husband. Very soon after they met, they had three children, as I said, and they were very close in age because they made three kids in four years. For the record, John Lee was described as a good father by all the people who knew him. About his professional life, he started working in 1958 as an accountant in different films. Nevertheless, something surprising is that through the years, he never rose through the rank, like he was always an average employee. So as I said before, the couple was moving often, but not for a better job, 
because it was always staying in the same position in all the films. And during the investigation, the police went to his former employees and learned that he was fired almost every time because even if he was a good worker, he had problems with team behavior. He didn't know how to behave in work. He always argued with his colleague, had the problem of superiority, and could not manage to work in a group. That was until 1965, when he got a very good promotion in the National Bank in New Jersey. There was a real leadership position for once. With this new well-paying job and some help from his mother, the family was able to move into the big manor. Now that John Lee's life before the murder was described, I will explain what happened the day of the slaughter. On November 10, 1971, the school principal got a letter from John List. It was explaining that all the children will be missing school because a member of the family was really sick in North Carolina. So the letter was saying they will be absent for family reason, but not return date was given or written in the letter. Starting from then, the neighbor never saw them again. Only a few lights were on on the house during a few days and then at some point they were all off. One of the neighbors started to become very intrigued because of this light game. The light went out one by one in all the house for several days. So they called the police. And on December 7, 1971, two policemen went to the house. They looked outside but found nothing unusual. They inquired to figure out who was living there, who was living in this house, and they discovered an older woman lived there. Not one mentioned her yet, but what about the grandmother? Did she live with the family, or was she still there? So the policeman went back to the house, but seeing as it was almost dark, they needed to work fast. They saw a glimmer of light between the second and the third floor, so they went closer and discovered that the window in the first floor was not well closed. They got through the window and into the kitchen and heard very loud classical music. The very first thing they saw was blood stain on the windows. Then the ballroom was closed by two large white curtains, which dis decided to open. Since all the lights were off, they were lit by the flashlight and they saw four humans form lying on sleeping bags. The policemen approached the dead bodies on the ground. They were all cops, partly decomposed. They looked closer and so they were dead due to a bullet in the head. All of them got one, except the younger son who got almost a dozen the policeman reported. They called for reinforcement at this time, and during that, they wondered who could have done that. Is it a collective suicide or rather a massacre? The four cops were easy to identify. They were a woman and her three kids who were living in the house. 
While they explored the house, while waiting for other colleagues, the policemen discovered the grandmother, the father's mother, upstairs. She was also dead, with a bullet in her head too. From then, the policemen were looking for the dad, the last one who was missing, but they didn't find him at all. When they went to the office in the house, they found, a hun they found an unwritten letter by John List. It was prominently displayed with about five pages explaining that he was not dead and he was talking to his pastor. The letter was addressing to the pastor saying that he knew what he did was the letter was addressed to the pastor saying that he knew that what he did was really bad and he had no reasons for that. And he said he loved his family. He also gave some details showing that he was not able to live his life properly. He lost his job and since he was ruined, he thought he had failed his life and absolutely didn't want his family to know that. He said he was pretty sure they are all in heaven now. They are all safe. Finally, he added at the end of the letter a side note explaining that his mother was too heavy to move. So... No. <clears throat> yeah, finally, he added at the end of the letter a side note explaining that his mother was too heavy to move her into the ballroom with the other member of the family. So, at this point, a manhunt started through all the United States. The purpose was to find the one who killed all his family. Everybody was looking for the mass murderer, as he was called. On December 8, the story made all the headlines in the famous and less famous media, like everywhere. Sighting, for, sighting of him were reported, but they were always false. Two days later, his car was found in the parking lot of GFK International Airport. So the police can presume he left by plane, but which one and where? The people close to him wondered what happened. They said they never saw him as malicious or dangerous. They could understand what happened because he always looked nice and polite. However, we will learn that he was not always a nice guy. So in 1966, he got fired from his job. But instead of telling his wife and family about it, he decided to keep it to himself. And that's where everything began. He wouldn't tell them because he didn't want them thinking he failed. Every morning, he woke up, ate something, and dressed up in a suit and left. <clears throat> Every morning, he woke up, ate something, and dressed up in a suit and left for his job. At least, it was his family was thinking. In reality, he didn't go to work. Instead, he took the train, getting off several stations after his home and waited all day long before coming back home in the evening. This merry-go-round will last five years. Five years of doing that every single day. During this period, he will try to find another job, 
but he wouldn't go beyond the hiring period. This is why he killed his family, to hide that he was broken and no longer able to feed them, which will amount to saying that he fell his life. In the letter he put on his desk, it was dated from November 9th, so if the date is accurate, he was a month ahead of the police, which is a lot. So in order to understand where it could be, the police will study his personality. Thanks to, her study, no, thanks to their study, they better understood his character. John Lee was trying to hide the fact that he hasn't gotten a salary since 1966 and he tried to remain the same level of life during five years. A solution instead of killing all his family would have been to kill himself. That would have been only a dead person and the one who did all the problem. But because he was a very faithful person, a Lutheran, that was not possible at all. In the Lutheran church, suicide is a mortal sin that leads to hell. However, he could have left, like leaving all his family and abandoning them to start another life. But the psychologist of the investigation thought that he was too proud. In addition, because of the little amount of money he had, he could have asked someone to help his family, like a social fund. But once again, in the Lutheran ideology, being poor or broke is a sin, for which it's possible to go to hell. He murdered his family a year after he was last fired. His main goal in killing them was to bring them to paradise, to heaven. In fact, in his mind, he saved them from hell above all. He wrote, he wrote in his letter, at least I'm certain that all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if they would be the case. So now, the most asked question in the entire country is, where is he? The very first thing he did before leaving was withdraw money. $2,000 that he got on the joint account with his mother. The police were estimating he could only live two or three months with that amount of money. But the years went by and nothing is happening. A lot of people send in tips about where John List is living in the country, but each time the police did a verification, they turned up empty-handed. Then the years still go by until the 1980s. Regularly the newspaper are talking about him but the case was not solved yet and people don't believe police will find him anymore. He is considered as a myth and a urban legend for the public opinion. But at the end of the 80s, a producer of TV show decided to talk about the story. Precisely, a TV show on Fox called America's Most Wanted, where one episode was dedicated to a research person. Where every single episode was dedicated to a research person. The purpose is to solve unsolved 
investigation by Unleashed, the help of TV viewers. The Predator was part of it also because one day he soon died and the murderer was still unknown at the time the show was registered. So at the beginning, John Lee's case was not very liked by the Predator, but they chose to do but they choose to do it regardless. The episode was released in April 1989. A physical bust of John Lee's had been made with the physical tray he might have 17 years later, in order to help the viewers. In addition, some information was revealed to the audience. Apparently, a few years ago, he had a sweet voice, he often wore a shirt and a tie, and he was wearing glasses. During the live show, the producer received more than 200 calls from all over the country but one of them stood out more than all the others. The person over the phone indicates that his neighbor looked like John List. The call is from someone in Denver, Colorado. He said he noticed that his neighbor was lying a lot, so that might be him. Apparently, now his name would be Robert Clark, more known under the surname of Bob, and he moved out in Virginia a few weeks ago with his wife. On June 1st, 1987, the FBI arrived at Robert Clark Place in Richmond, Virginia, nine days after America's Most Wanted arrested the case. But they only found his wife, who didn't understand the situation at all. She said she was currently she said he was currently at his job working in a business firm and she added she said he was currently at his job working in a business firm and she added her husband was not journalist for sure nevertheless the FBI went to his job and fingerprinted him it was him without a doubt he said nothing he was only smiling however he confessed his true identity only on February 16, 1990. On June 29, John Lee was 63 years old. He was extradited from Virginia to New Jersey for murder, for, for murder in the first degree. But first, the investigator wanted him to speak to a psychologist. He told them his entire story. I thought my family would go to heaven, and I would too. He also told them that the morning before the shooting happened, the kids took their breakfast, and he said he tried to act. He tried to act as natural as possible. No emotion should be shown until they went to school. He got an old gun from his father and took it to kill his wife right in the middle of the kitchen. After that, he went, on the upper he went on the upper floor to kill his mom. Then, he wrote a letter to the school for his kids, saying they were exempt for school and went to the bank to withdraw $2,000. To he went back home and moved the corpse of his wife and cleaned the blood in the kitchen. He made himself a sandwich and read the journal, as all the other day, 
and he waited for the children to come back from school. The first one who came back was Patricia. She was immediately shut in the kitchen too. Then Frederick came home and the same scenario happened. Finally, he went to John's school to see him play soccer with his team. He attended the meeting surrounded by other parents. But they also went back home together and he decided to kill his last son too. He told the investigator that he was the hardest to kill because the first bullet wasn't sufficient. His son went into a sort of spasm, so he tried again several times. In total, John's son had received 10 bullets in his face and chest. He said after that, he went into the kitchen, prepared himself a good meal and went to bed early. He felt relieved to have done what he did. The next morning, he woke up, lowered the temperature of the house to around 50 degrees Fahrenheit to prevent the bodies from decomposing. He also put on all the light in the house and put his favorite radio station on. Then he finally wrote his letter to his pastor, the one the police saw the day they discovered the, the cops. And after doing all of that, he said he took a train to Michigan where he took a plane for Denver, Colorado. In town, he found a job as a cook in a restaurant and said his name was Robert. He started a new life, a free life, as he said. In fact, he felt freed from the burden of his family. So, the psychologist and his medical team concluded that he had an excessive and compulsive personality disorder. This is a mental illness, but doesn't warrant the insanity defense. So he was deemed fit to stand trial. The trial started on April 2nd, 1990, in front of the Supreme Court of New Jersey. He pleaded guilty instantaneously. The main issue was to know if he acted deliberately or under extenuating circumstances. Could it be second-degree murder? Was he either a prisoner of his crazy logic? The psychologist at the bar concluded that he was mentally able to make another choice. So the trio went on for two weeks and the jury deliberated for nine hours and he was declared guilty of five murders at the first degree in 1990. The sentencing trial would take place. The sentencing trial would take place three weeks later. During this time, he said he was sorry. That maybe his mental stability was not the same when he killed them. But the sentence had but the sentence has been determined and because the murder were committed in 1971 before New Jersey state restored their penalty the judge condemned him to five times life imprisonment at this moment the room applauded he will try three times to appeal arguing that he got post traumatic stress 
due to the end of due to the end of his service in Germany at the end of the World War II, but all the requests were rejected by the courts. Later, when he was 77, he gave an interview to the TV show American Justice, where he said he thought he will go to heaven, no matter what he did, and he will be reunited with all his family. And maybe that everyone will forgive him for what he did, he passed away a few years ago, on March 21st, 2008, at the Penitentiary Medical Center in Trenton, New Jersey. Thank you so much for joining me today as we discuss the journalist case be sure to follow the Criminology and Criminal Justice Collective's Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at CCGCUMD. For any question about today's podcast, please contact our president, Sarah Doctor, via email saradok at umich.edu. Stay tuned for the next episode as we discuss Ken Rex McElroy.